in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. And in my last episode, I talked about the early efforts to put a human being into Earth orbit. To the moon! Actually, no, just to the orbit. We covered how the Soviet Union did it first with a cosmonaut named Yuri, and inside a Vostok 1 spacecraft. Actually, it's a Vostok 3KA spacecraft, but it was named the Vostok 1. And I also talked about how U.S. astronaut Alan Shepard flew a suborbital mission in the Freedom 7 Mercury space capsule. But I had not quite reached the point where a U.S. astronaut completed an orbit of the Earth or what came next. So in today's episode, we're going to look more at those missions and the spacecraft that followed those early examples. So both the Vostok and the Mercury spacecraft went on six missions, not not the same spacecraft, but those models. Uh, they both went on six different missions from 1961 to 1963. So they were closely in competition with one another. The Soviet missions included Valentina Tereshkova. Uh, she was the first woman in space. The U.S. missions had two suborbital missions, the first in the Freedom 7 that I mentioned earlier with Alan Shepard, the second was in a spacecraft named the Liberty Bell 7. That one was piloted by Virgil Ivan Gus Grissom. Gus would also play a very important role in the development of the Gemini spacecraft, which I'll talk about later in this episode. And starting with the third Mercury mission, which was in the Friendship 7 and was piloted by John Glenn, the U.S. began to send astronauts into orbit. So John Glenn was the first U.S. astronaut to go into orbit. I'll cover that one more in just a second, because that was a big deal for the U.S. The Mercury missions had two designations. The suborbital flights were classified under the name Mercury-Redstone. The four orbital missions were called Mercury-Atlas missions. So along with Shepard, Grissom, and Glenn, you had the astronauts Leroy Gordon Gordy Cooper Jr., Walter Marty Wally Skira Jr., Malcolm Scott Carpenter, who didn't get a fun nickname, I guess, and Donald Kent Deke Slayton. The only one of the seven who did not pilot a Mercury mission, because remember, there were six Mercury missions. They were one-man capsules, seven astronauts, someone gets left out. The one left out was Donald Kent Deke Slayton. He was grounded after medical exams found he had an irregularity with his heartbeat. And just to be on the safe side, they decided not to send him up into space uh, although everyone kept saying he'd probably be okay, but we don't want to take the chance. Slayton, however, would eventually regain his flight status in the 1970s and would ultimately get to travel to space as part of an Apollo-Soyuz mission, which I'll talk about in the next episode. That was a collaborative effort between the United States and the Soviet space programs. So he did finally get to go up into space, but it was a decade later than what he had planned. John Glenn's historic flight on February 20th, 1962 saw him orbit the Earth three times. The mission took nearly five hours from launch to touchdown. And Cooper's mission on May 15th, 1963 on the Faith 7 took nearly a day and a half. This was the final Mercury mission. So why did it take so long? Well, it's because Cooper orbited the Earth 22 times. To prepare for these orbital missions, astronauts would train for two years, and one month out from the mission launch date, two astronauts would get the nod as being the picks for that mission. You would have an astronaut, and you would have an alternate. 
That way, if the primary pick had an issue on launch day, like a medical condition that could threaten the safety of the astronaut or the mission, there was already an alternate. So let's say it's launch day, everyone wakes up, turns out your primary pick for your mission has come down with a terrible case of food poisoning. Well, you can't send that person up in a spacecraft. You have to go with your alternate. Three days before launch, the astronauts who had been picked for that mission would be switched to a special diet that would help reduce the possibility that said astronaut would need to go poop during the mission. I said that in a way to honor my former co-host Chris Paulette, who I think would have said it the same way. Chris, if you're listening, let me know. The astronauts would get suited up and put on a mask to breathe pure oxygen to prep for the conditions of being inside the capsule a few hours before they actually would get in. Two hours before launch, they would go and get into the Mercury capsule, so they still have two hours to go. In the last episode, I mentioned the dimensions of this capsule. It was big enough for a single astronaut seated in kind of a reclined position. So they're essentially laying on their backs in a seated position, staring up at the sky. Outside the capsule, mechanics would bolt on the hatch to seal the astronaut inside. Ground control would go forward with the countdown, checking all the launch systems and the weather conditions to make sure everything was good to go. Delays would just mean that the astronaut would be laying down there for a really long time. There's a great story about Alan Shepard and a delay and his need to make use of the facilities. And there are no facilities aboard the Mercury, at least not that first one. I'll leave it at that. You can read up on it if you really want to know more. Anyway, four seconds before liftoff, the rocket engines would come to life and they would ignite. Clamps would hold the launch vehicle down on the pad, essentially holding the rocket in place until enough thrust had been built up for liftoff. At that point, the clamps would release and the rocket would lift off the launch pad. And a couple of minutes after launch, two booster rocket engines would turn off and jettison off the vehicle. A a central thruster would continue to fire and give enough thrust to do sort of the final push to get up into orbit. That would continue until they reached the proper orbital altitude, and then they would uh, the capsule could reorient itself into a position that was horizontal with respect to the Earth. Then the engine would shut off. At that point, the spacecraft would jettison the launch engines and continue its orbit until it was time to reorient again and fire the retro rockets, which would slow down the spacecraft enough for it to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. That repositioning for re-entry was really the only maneuvering the capsule could do in space. And it took just a bit less than an hour and a half to make a full orbit of the Earth, around 88 minutes or so to do one full orbit. I talked about the re-entry process in the last episode, so I'm not going to go over it again here because it was the same for each of the Mercury missions to slow down enough so that the parachutes would deploy once you hit certain altitudes and then you would land in the water and wait to get picked up. Now, it's basically it. The first of the six manned Mercury flights happened on May 5th, 1961. The final one happened on May 15th, 1963. During that time, what was happening over at the Soviet Union? Well, in the last episode, I talked about the Vostok 1 mission with Yuri, which was, again, that first space mission to put a human into orbit. That happened in April 1961, a month before the first uh, manned Mercury mission. 
Then the Americans held their first suborbital manned flight, which was partially piloted by the astronaut inside the spacecraft. So that was a little bit of a one-up on the Soviets in that respect because Yuri didn't control the spacecraft of the Vostok 1. That was completely under automatic control. On August 6th, 1961, a few months later, the Vostok 2 launched into space with the then 25-year-old cosmonaut German Titov. He spent more than a day orbiting the Earth. He was out in space orbiting the Earth for more than 24 hours. That was something that the Americans would not be able to match for nearly two years. His spacecraft orbited the Earth 17 times during the amount of time he was out in space. And like Yuri, Titov was inside a Vostok 3KA spacecraft. It was called the Vostok 2, but its classification was Vostok 3KA. The crew compartment was essentially a sphere. It was the same as, uh, as Yuri Gagarin's. Uh, this connected to an equipment module that was more conical in shape. I mentioned that in the previous episode too. That in turn connected to the rocket engines. The length of the mission was a matter of hot scientific debate before the launch of the Vostok 2. How long should this mission be? The Russians had experimented with dogs aboard a spacecraft that had made six orbits of the Earth. And during those experiments, the dogs had experienced convulsions. So the Soviets weren't sure. Maybe if you stayed in space for more than just a few orbits, you might start having severe health uh, issues. So the dogs had returned to Earth alive, but it left the scientists worried that a human might encounter similar problems after extended periods of weightlessness. There was also a concern about where the spacecraft was going to land because each time it orbited the Earth, it would actually shift the landing position for the, the spacecraft. It would shift a little bit to the west. So if you orbited a few times, you would still be in Russia. Russia is a really big country. But a few more than that, and suddenly you're in Europe and then you'd be out over the ocean, etc. And so you would have to keep orbiting the Earth until you had done... Uh, essentially a 24-hour stint in space before you were over Russia again. So the choices seemed to be either go up for a very short amount of time, which was similar to what they had already done, or go up for a longer time not knowing what the effects were going to be, but you would be able to land the spacecraft back in Russia. So ultimately, they decided to go with the longer mission. Titov was given manual control of his spacecraft during the mission. So while he was in orbit, he was able to take control of this Vostok 2 spacecraft. Ground control still maintained control of the spacecraft for most of its operation. The mission did have a couple of issues. One of the was the uh, first known instance of space sickness. This is a uh, kind of a disoriented nausea that can set upon an astronaut or a cosmonaut. Titov became nauseated shortly after the first few orbits had passed. He fell asleep after his spacecraft had made seven orbits. This was planned. He was actually going to bed. And he slept for more than eight hours. But when he woke up, he reported that he still wasn't feeling great. It was only after 12 orbits that the nausea passed. Also, like the Vostok 1, the Vostok 2 experienced problems upon re-entry. If you listen to my last episode, you heard about that. In fact, it was exactly the same issue. The equipment module, that conical section that's connected to the sphere that's the re-entry module, did not detach properly at the beginning of re-entry. It's supposed to jettison off, but it failed to do that completely. It was still kind of tethered to the spherical re-entry 
module. That threw off the Vostek 2's orientation. You suddenly had this loose weight that was connected to your reentry module, and it made it spin and gyrate and shake like crazy. Eventually, the heat and the various gyrations of the spacecraft made that tether break, and then the reentry module was all by itself, and it continued down as it had been atten- intended, and it uh, there were no other issues. And, uh, and Titov was able to eject at the seven-kilometer mark and float down safely on his parachute. Now, I've got more to say about the Vostok missions, but before I get into that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. A year after the Vostok 2 mission, the Soviet Union held a pair of launches. On August 11, 1962, Andrian Nikolaev launched into space on the Vostok 3, and he would end up spending almost four full days in orbit, making 64 orbits around the Earth. This was still a year before Gordy Cooper would uh, break the American record by orbiting the Earth 22 times in the Faith 7 Mercury capsule. So the Soviet Union was really setting records in endurance in orbit, and records that wouldn't be broke until NASA would have their Gemini project later on. The day after the Vostok 3 launched, the Soviet Union launched the Vostok 4. This one carried Pavel Popovich on board. That made the Soviet Union the first country in the world to have two manned spacecraft in orbit at the same time. The two ships were actually able to establish ship-to-ship radio communication when they got close enough to each other. And by close enough, I mean they were still kilometers apart, like six and a half kilometers apart when they established radio communication. So they weren't like they were right next to each other. The USSR would then repeat that feat with the Vostok 5 and 6 capsules. Remember, Vostok 6 was also the one that had Valentina Tereshkova, the first woman in space, aboard it. Those spacecraft launched in June 1963. The Vostok 5 made 82 orbits. The Vostok 6, with uh, Valentina aboard, made 48 orbits. Like the Vostok 1 and 2 spacecraft, the Vostok 5 experienced those same problems with that separation from the equipment module upon re-entry. And at this point, it's amazing to me that none of these Soviet missions resulted in a catastrophic failure upon re-entry. Now, there are conspiracy theories that allege the Soviet Union space program resulted in numerous unreported cosmonaut fatalities. I should add that most of those conspiracy theories don't rely on very convincing evidence. It's a lot of circumstantial stuff and a lot of just wild speculation. Now, that does not mean that the theories are wrong necessarily, but I wouldn't put stock into them without more actual evidence and proof of the matter. Did it happen? Maybe, but I haven't seen the evidence to convince me yet. Both the Mercury and Vostok programs had those six manned missions, and both saw the final missions launch in 1963. And both the USA and the USSR would go on to different designs for their next spacecraft, although they were both very similar to the previous generation of spacecraft. So for the Soviets, that was the Voshkod project, and I have no idea if I'm saying that correctly. I could be completely butchering it, but I'm going with it. So the Voshkod space vehicles started off essentially as Vostok spacecraft, but they had a couple of different designs to it. One, they had an additional solid fuel retro rocket mounted on the re-entry module. Remember, the first Vostok spacecraft had one retro rocket, and if it failed, 
then the cosmonaut aboard would just have to wait for 10 days for the orbit to decay enough for the spacecraft to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. However, the Voshkod could not take this luxury, if you can call it that, because it was going to be placed in a higher orbit. So it would take much longer for its orbit to decay, and it would put the cosmonaut's life in danger. So just in case one of the retro rockets were to, or the main retro rocket, if it were to fail, there was a backup. The Voshkod also had a projection on it that was uh, a place, it was a ring where inside the ring there was an inflatable airlock system inside of it, which would be used on the second Voshkod uh, mission. It wasn't used in the first one, but it would be used in the second one. And that gave the Voshkod spacecraft a little bit of a knobby look to it compared to the Vostok one. Uh, but the Voshkod also lacked an important feature that the Vostok had, which was a launch escape system. The Vostok had a limited escape system. If an emergency happened during launch, assuming it wasn't too early in the launch or too late in the launch, you could actually use the escape system to pull the cosmonaut away to safety. The Voshkod did not have this. So if there had been a failure during launch, there would be no escape for the cosmonauts, which is pretty terrifying. It was designed to land with the crew still inside the spacecraft, which again set it apart from the Vostok. With Vostok, once you hit seven kilometers upon descent, you would eject out of the spacecraft and you would parachute by yourself down to the ground. The Voshkod was meant to parachute with the cosmonauts still inside the capsule. And that, that bit about the crew being inside the capsule and saying like everyone would still be inside, that's a clue to the other big advancement. The Voshkod could carry more than one cosmonaut. Now it was meant to carry two, but political pressure from the Soviet government that really was determined to show up the United States demanded that the first manned Voshkod mission would actually have three crew members. And that was more or less a political requirement, not a technological requirement, not a scientific one. It was politically motivated. And the engineers had to figure out how to make this work in a spacecraft that was really meant to carry just two people in spacesuits. So that meant that the three people inside the Voshkod could not wear spacesuits. They had to wear normal jumpsuits, but not spacesuits, which was, again, terrifying because if anything went wrong, there was no pressurized spacesuit that could save their lives. They would just die in that capsule. And America was already at work at the Gemini Project. So this had created a real um, motivation for Russia to move forward and get multiple cosmonauts aboard one space uh, vehicle. It would set another world's first. It would be the world's first spacecraft to carry more than one person. That three-person crew came with some other hefty drawbacks. Uh, it wasn't just the spacesuits. I mean, there was hardly any room for anyone to move. And there was a real concern that the, the close proximity and the limited maneuverability was going to require them to cut the mission short. The Voshkod-1 launched on October 12, 1964, and they completed 16 orbits around the Earth and returned a little more than 24 hours after launch. Uh, the Voshkod also had a braking rocket, as in, you know, hit the brakes, that would help slow down the spacecraft's descent and help reduce the impact of landing on solid ground. Because the Voshkod, unlike the Mercury or the Gemini, or the Apollo, as it were, uh, wasn't designed to land in the water, it was designed to land on firm ground. For the cosmonauts aboard the Voshkod, 
the world changed significantly during their mission because when they went up into space, the Soviet premier was Nikita Khrushchev. When they landed, a day later, Khrushchev had been removed from power and replaced by Alexei Kozygin and Leonid Brezhnev, which is a heck of a 24 hours when the leadership of your country has changed in essentially a coup since you <laughs> went up into space and came back down. That's a big deal, especially when you consider it's the government that's funding everything. The Voskhod 2 mission would launch in March 1965. Now, this was a two-man mission with both cosmonauts wearing spacesuits. So this was supposed to be more along the lines of what the engineers had intended from the beginning. This was also a necessity. They had to wear spacesuits because this was the first space flight to have a spacewalk, meaning one of the two cosmonauts was going to have to leave the spacecraft and go out into outer space. So both of them had to have spacesuits. Alexei Leonov, the pilot of the craft, conducted a 12-minute spacewalk during this mission. And it, the whole mission lasted a little more than 24 hours, and the craft made 17 orbits of the Earth. The Voshkod deployed an inflatable exterior airlock in order to allow for this mission. That, that airlock, like I said, was on sort of a ring on the outer side of the spherical reentry module. And after use, after... Leonov had come back into the capsule, they would jettison the airlock into space. So it was not a permanent part of the spacecraft itself. The airlock required seven minutes to inflate. It had 40 channels into which air would flow, and those channels were all grouped into three big clusters, and that would hold the shape of the airlock. The airlock kept the spacecraft pressurized while it was uh, first deployed. So Leonov would inflate this airlock, open up the hatch, climb into the airlock, and his commander, Pavel Beleyev, would seal the hatch behind Leonov. And then the airlock would be depressurized. That would allow Leonov to exit the spacecraft into space. And according to Leonov, he was given a special, a special thing just in case there were any problems of him getting back into the spacecraft because there was no guarantee he was going to be able to get back in once he went out. They, they tried very hard to design a system so that Leonov would be able to return to the spacecraft, but no one was really sure how it was going to turn out. So just in case he had a suicide capsule that he could bite into, in case he would be unable to go back into the spacecraft so that he could end his life on his own terms, which is pretty heavy stuff even in a weightless environment. Leonov actually did have some problems getting back into the spacecraft. It fortunately did not necessitate suicide, but he was having some issues. He was getting finding difficulty moving through the airlock. His uh, spacesuit had sort of inflated, and it made squeezing through the airlock very difficult. So in order to move through the airlock, he was forced to release some air from his suit, to release pressure from his suit out into space and give him enough flexibility to move through the airlock and get back inside the spacecraft. Once he was in, it took him and his crewmate more time to seal the spacecraft. They were having issues making sure that the seal was actually proper and then jettisoning the, um, the airlock. And then they found it difficult to maneuver inside the spacecraft, but inside their spacesuits. So they were, you know, they had gotten up out of their seats in order to do this, and it was hard for them to get back into position for re-entry. So all of this delayed the re-entry process by a bit. And so things did not go exactly as planned. On top of all that, 
The Voxhod 2 had the same re-entry problem that the Vostok 1, 2, and 5 spacecrafts did. In other words, the re-entry module and the equipment module did not have a clean separation upon re-entry. They were stuck together, which meant that, again, the re-entry module started to spin like crazy until finally the equipment module broke away. And so by the time everything was said and done, their spacecraft landed about 400 kilometers away from where they had planned to land. So they were hundreds of miles away from where they were supposed to go. Their spacecraft touched down in a heavily forested area that was populated by little critters, you know, like wolves and bears. Fortunately, the Soviet government had thought about this. They had supplied them with a pistol and some ammunition, just in case of bear attack, you know? They ended up having to bunker down in a freezing cold spacecraft. Uh, The heater was no longer working although the fans were still blowing air. And they it got super cold. Like, it dropped below freezing in that part of Russia. And uh, they were able to survive the night. The next day, a rescue party on skis was able to reach their location, but it was too late for them to leave that location at that point. So instead, the group constructed a log cabin, a simple log cabin, and that's where they stayed overnight. And then the next day, they were able to ski to a rescue location because the forest was so thick, there was just no place for helicopters to land to pick them up. So they had to ski down to a site where helicopters could pick them up from there. After this second Voshkod program, or mission rather, the whole program concluded. There were a lot other missions that had been planned as part of this program, but by then, the Soviet Union was changing its mind. The regime had changed in the USSR, the uh, the scientists in charge of the space program were finally getting a little more leverage so that they could demand a more scientific approach and fewer missions that were just meant to show up the United States. Uh, and while they were impressive, they weren't they weren't advancing science and technology very much. So that was their objection to that. And plus, over in the United States, NASA was making up ground with the Gemini project. More about that in just a second. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. So the Voshkod program was again putting the Soviets ahead of the Americans. But meanwhile, work on the Gemini project was continuing with enthusiasm. The project actually began in 1961. That was while the Mercury flights were still going on. So the Mercury flights are going... And already, NASA's thinking about the next project. Actually, technically, NASA was thinking two projects ahead uh, because between Mercury and Gemini, NASA had already determined that they were going to have the Apollo missions. So Gemini was launched as a project after Apollo, although the flights would all happen before Apollo. The first Gemini mission wouldn't launch until March 23, 1965, which was the same month as Voxhod 2. So the Gemini was a two-person spacecraft, and the two crew members would sit side by side in very cramped quarters. You couldn't really get up and move around very much. You were pretty much stuck in that seated position unless you were popping outside to do a quick extravehicular activity or spacewalk. So if you're sitting down, if you're in the left seat, that would mean that you are the command pilot for that mission. And in the right seat would be the pilot for the mission. The seats had an ejection system inside of them because 
Unlike the Mercury, which had a launch escape system incorporated directly into the design of the launch configuration for the spacecraft, the Gemini did not have that. The best they had was an ejection seat. Now, I didn't really cover this when I talked about the Mercury, but if you were to look at a Mercury capsule on top of a rocket on a launch pad, you would notice there's this kind of tower that's on the very top of the Mercury capsule. That tower was the escape uh, mechanism for, uh, in the case of a, a launch failure. Essentially, it was a booster rocket attached via that tower to the top of the Mercury capsule. So if there was a launch catastrophe, the rocket would ignite. That would separate the crew section of the Mercury spacecraft from the launch vehicle to create distance between the capsule and the rocket. And then the booster rocket would break away and the parachutes would come out and hopefully the crew would land safely. The Gemini did not have this. They just had the ejector seats. They would bring that launch escape mechanism back for the Apollo missions. So while Mercury was all about learning more about how space would affect humans, Gemini's purpose was largely to set the foundation for the succeeding Apollo missions, which would take people to the moon. So as I said before, the Apollo program started before the Gemini program, but the goal of the Apollo program was getting to the moon and getting back to Earth safely. And NASA said, hey, you know what? We probably need an intermediary step between Mercury, where people went into orbit, and Apollo, where people are going to go to the moon. We're going to need to test a whole lot of different technology. We're going to have to refine processes. We're going to have to figure out how to do specific maneuvers, like putting a spacecraft into a docking mode to uh, interconnect with another spacecraft, and how to do orbital maneuvers. These are all things that the Mercury capsule could not do. It was not equipped to do that. But they would need to perfect this before they committed in the Apollo program. So President Kennedy chartered the Apollo program in May 1961. Gemini would not get a formal announcement until January 1962, though both of those programs were already in development before those specific dates. Now that meant that Gemini missions were going to focus on things like prolonged space flights, extravehicular activity or spacewalks, uh, orbital maneuvers. These were all gonna be critical components of Apollo missions because landing on the moon would mean that part of your spacecraft would detach from uh, the command module and then land on the moon. And so you would have a crew of three with Apollo, spoiler alert for next episode, and two of the crew members would go down in the lander and land on the moon. The third one would stay aboard on the command module. And then it, ultimately those two people would have to get back into the lander that would launch off the surface of the moon rendezvous with the command module and dock. So there were a lot of things that had to be worked out in order to make that technology possible. And that's why Gemini existed. It was to be the working ground to create all that technology. The Gemini program was marked by both triumph and tragedy. It would put the U.S. back in the lead for the space race, ultimately, but it also involved the deaths of three of the astronauts involved. In 1964, Theodore Freeman died in a crash while bringing his T-38 training jet in for a landing. The cause of the crash was actually a goose flew and collided with the cockpit as the jet was landing, and it collided with such force that it broke part of the cockpit and plexiglass flew out of the cockpit into the engine intake and caused the jet to crash. And in 1966, 
Elliot C. and Charles Bassett, who had been chosen to be the crew members for Gemini 9, they died in an accident on a training jet. Uh, Elliot C. was piloting the plane. The weather was really bad. There was rain, there was fog, there was snow. Uh, Ultimately, an investigation concluded that pilot error was at fault for the crash. And so the backup crew for Gemini 9 would end up taking their place. In many ways, the Gemini spacecraft was sort of an embiggened version of the Mercury capsule. NASA had learned a lot from the Mercury project, however, so it wasn't identical. There were some major differences. One of those was that NASA created a modular system for spacecraft components, which allowed different teams to work on the various systems in their individual modules. And so when they tested these before ever launching anything, making sure everything works with everything else, if a system failed or proved incompatible with the capsule design, the team could take that module back out and they could make adjustments to it, fixing it, changing it, and all the other modules that had been working just fine could remain in place. They didn't have to be messed with. So since it wasn't all incorporated directly together in one big mess, then you could make more granular changes and you could have a lot of parallel development going on simultaneously, which of course saved a huge amount of time and effort and ultimately that also meant it saved money. Gemini also relied heavily on solid-state electronics, taking advantage of advances in electronics that had developed while the Mercury project was already going, so they, they were more sophisticated spacecraft. And like the Mercury, the Gemini was meant to land in the water. Originally, NASA had wanted to incorporate gear that would allow a touchdown on land, but time constraints meant there just wasn't enough time to do that. So they decided to go with the true splashdown approach. They had tried it. They knew it worked. They're going to stick with it. The Gemini capsule also had a detachable module called the adapter module at the base of it. Uh, Inside that compartment were some various systems like propulsion, electrical, water, and oxygen, as well as the retro rockets. So it was separate from the cabin that the uh, crew members sat in. Technically, the Gemini had five sections. Uh, It had the equipment section, uh, a retrograde section, and both of those were inside the adapter module. It had the cabin section. That's where the crew sat. It had a re-entry control system and a rendezvous and recovery section. So that's kind of working from the base up. The equipment section was the part that would also interface with the launch vehicle. That's space talk saying that's the part that would attach to the rocket. So the rocket uh, for the original Gemini mission was a Titan II. They would use other rockets later on in the Gemini program. Fun fact, the Titan II's original purpose was to be an intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM. And I'll talk more about that in an upcoming episode of Tech Stuff. So let's say you're looking at this Gemini spacecraft. You're looking at it from top to bottom, the, the, the conical section, not the rocket, but just the spacecraft part for the Gemini. The tippy-tippy top, the pointy bit, was the rendezvous and recovery section that had rendezvous radar inside of it and also the two parachutes that would be used to help stabilize and slow down the spacecraft in its descent. The next segment down was the reentry control system, which held fuel and oxidizer tanks and attitude control thrusters. I always like talking about attitude control with spacecraft because it sounds like a spacecraft was kind of getting out of line and then you just you turn on attitude control. It's like giving it a timeout, except we're really talking about orientation, not like personality attitude. Next, down the line was the cabin section, the place where the crew sat, the two crew members of each Gemini mission. 
Then was the retrograde and equipment sections. Uh, retrograde on top of equipment, but this is the base of that conical section, uh, both in the adapter module. The retrograde had deorbit motors and thrusters, and the equipment section had more control thrusters and um, the systems I had mentioned earlier. And these were all meant to allow the Gemini to maneuver in space. Uh, and one of the really, really big changes between Mercury and Gemini was that Gemini could actually move into a different orbit. So Mercury could reorient itself for re-entry. It could change its orientation with respect to the Earth, but it couldn't change its orbit. Gemini could. It had the thrusters and the fuel aboard to allow for that. So you could actually move the Gemini from one orbit into another Earth orbit. There were 10 manned Gemini missions. Deke Slayton, who was one of the original Mercury astronauts but was never allowed to fly a Mercury mission, he was grounded due to irregularities detected in his heartbeat, would become the director of flight crew operations. So it was his job to pick which astronauts would serve as crew aboard the various missions. Those missions included a couple of really notable ones. They were all notable, but there are a couple of standouts. Gemini 8 in 1966 saw Neil Armstrong... Uh, and uh, uh, David Randolph Scott deal with a real emergency. The mission saw the Gemini spacecraft dock with an unmanned target vehicle out in space. This was the first time any manned vehicle had docked with another vehicle out in space. So a, a first in the world, one of the ways that the United States was able to start getting a lead on the Soviet Union. But while it was docked, one of the Gemini's thrusters malfunctioned, and it sent the craft into an unplanned spin. So Armstrong and Scott had to work to undock the Gemini, and Armstrong had to try and regain control of the spacecraft. They were forced to conduct an emergency landing. It was the first time any U.S. manned space mission required an emergency landing. But they were able to do it, and obviously they both survived, and they would also both go on to participate in Apollo missions. In fact, both of them would be uh, two of the astronauts to walk on the moon, which is kind of cool. The longest of all the Gemini missions would happen right in the middle of the, the program. It was the Gemini 7, uh, which was just a few hours shy of lasting two full weeks in low Earth orbit. It made 206 orbits of the Earth. And again, this was one of those necessities to show how long-term exposure to the rigors of space travel would affect people. If you're going to go all the way to the moon and back, that's a journey that takes a couple of days. So you want to make sure, absolutely certain, that human beings can withstand those, those uh, stresses that are put upon them. Now, in our next episode, I'll look more closely at the Apollo and Soyuz capsules and and what made those spacecraft special. Talk more about the design of the Apollo spacecraft and, and how it was able to make such an amazing accomplishment like landing a segment on the moon. And not only that, but taking off from the moon and reconnecting with the command module. That's the part that really blows my mind. Not just that we were able to get people to the moon, but that we were able to get them back again. That's phenomenal. That'll be our next episode. After that, we're going to take a closer look at rockets. And after that, we're going to look at the space shuttle. So we've got a lot more space to come. If you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, possibly not involving space at all, 
send me a message. The email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle there is techstuffhsw. Remember, we've got a merch store now over at tpublic.com slash techstuff. That's t-e-e-public.com slash techstuff. If you've ever wanted a techstuff t-shirt or a coffee mug, now's your chance. Don't forget, you can also follow us on Instagram. I hope to see you there, and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 